Well, I get up to the pulpit. This is not part of the sermon, but uh, I get up to the pulpit and I find this bottle of Gatorade up here after the band shared a meme that pointed out that we should be as excited about church as we are about the Super Bowl. And therefore, whenever the pastor makes a good point, you should dump Gatorade over his head. So, apologies to anyone who has uh, cleaning duty this week. All right. You guys kill me. All right. Well, have you... uh, Have you ever made a mistake and people just won't let you forget it? Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever hurt someone, tried to make it right, and you thought it was settled, but somehow uh, they just keep bringing it up? Two older gentlemen were having breakfast, and uh, the one lamented... I just don't know what to do. Every time my wife and I get into an argument, she just gets historical. And and the other one said, don't you mean hysterical? I said, no, historical. She brings up everything I've ever done wrong. Sometimes life is like that. Sin can have effects that we can't get away from, even to the point of being passed on through generations. Today, our text in Numbers 20 is going to take us down that road. Uh, So I'd invite you to turn with me to Numbers 20. We looked at the first 13 verses last time and we saw um, Moses and Aaron failing as leaders. They had led God's people faithfully all this time, certainly not without sin, but now in in this first portion of Numbers 20, we're, we're getting back to Uh, the place where they're about to enter the promised land, and they blow it. In in fact, God says because they they didn't do exactly what God said, they did almost what God said, but they did it their own way, and Moses gave in to the urges of his flesh. And God said, because you didn't trust me enough, you didn't believe in me enough to honor me as holy before these people, you will not be able to bring them into the land that I'm giving them. And so we see at the end of chapter 20, that's, this is next week's message, that, that Aaron will die. And then later at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses die. Sin has consequences. In fact, that is the core reality that we're going to be considering for the entire book of Numbers. Book of Numbers. We've talked about it. Hopefully this is deep in your mind and heart if you've been with us because we can't really understand the smaller portions without understanding the bigger theme. The core reality for the Book of Numbers is that our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to His promises. He stays the same through the ages. His love never changes. So here now in verses 14 to 21 of Numbers 20, we will encounter a a seemingly random story that that comes across maybe as just historical, and, and it is that, but it's more. Reading together from Numbers 20, starting with verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, this is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, we will go along the main road and if we 
<clears throat> if our livestock, uh, if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again, they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, as we consider this text today, pray that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, that you would cause us not only to be hearers of your word, but to be doers. That we might learn from this rift between brothers. That we might put our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if we're going to understand this text, we're going to have to get historical. We're going to have to go back to see what led up to this and get a little understanding for it. Our core reality today for this text is that in the difficulty of sin's lasting damage, God remains in control. In the difficulty of sin's lasting damage, God remains in control. Now, before we get to the text, some of you, I would venture to say all of you, all of us, have to deal with the difficulty of sin's lasting effects. If for no other reason, then we are all children of parents who were sinners. Our parents are imperfect. There are no perfect parents. So before you start you know, wanting to bash your mom and dad for how they failed you, you're not doing better, right? We're, we're all failing in some area. Hopefully, we are walking faithfully as Moses and Aaron did in leading the children of Israel. But they failed. They were imperfect. Our hope is not in our parents, in our leaders, in our loved ones, in our mentors. Humans will let us down. Amen? Because we're all flawed. And we need to make sure that we're aware of that. As people who need to be forgiven for our own shortcomings, we need to be quick to forgive others. Now, in this story, there is this problem between the people of Edom, the king of Edom, and the messengers that Moses sends from Israel. Edom is the descendants of Esau. So to, for us to understand this, we're going to want to start in Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 25. So if you're in Numbers, just page back to the left. Genesis means beginning, so you can guess where you'll find it. It's a familiar story for most of us, but we want to see it in the text. Genesis 25, we see that uh, Abraham dies and, and he's got these sons, Isaac and Ishmael. You may remember that Ishmael was the uh, son that Abraham had uh, with his wife's servant, his, her Egyptian servant, Hagar. And Ishmael was the child of the flesh, not of the promise. God had promised Abraham that, that he and Sarah would have a child. This child would be uh, one through whom God would bless not only uh, Abraham, but would make of Abraham a great nation and bless all nations through him. Abraham and Sarah got a little impatient and decided they were going to help God out. Never a good idea. God can do it without us. Amen? And so they take matters into their own hands, and they do the natural thing. They come up with a natural way to produce a natural child. Uh, but Ishmael is not the child of the promise. Isaac is the child of the promise. And Isaac now is a, an old man, and he has these sons, or is an older man, he uh, has these sons. We're going to pick up his account in verse 19. 
Genesis 25, starting with verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. In other words, she wasn't able to conceive. Okay, so the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? How many, how many of you ladies who have been pregnant have thought that same thing? Why in the world is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth... There were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Get a little favoritism going on in the family. You can see that's not going to go well. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Edom means red. Esau may mean hairy. Verse 31, Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Now, before we go on here, what kind of a brother does that? What kind of a brother says, yeah, I've got this soup, but... You have to give me your birthright. Hand over your, your promised inheritance, older brother. I, the brothers I'm thinking of are like Loki and Thor. You know, you're talking about you know, some... This is not a good situation, right? This isn't even like the Smothers brothers. Mother always liked you best, right? This, this is dastardly, grasping. Jacob means grasp the heel, just as we saw him coming out of the womb, grasping the heel. Now he's grasping for what belongs to Esau. I always had a problem with this story, by the way. This is just growing up, reading the Bible according to my own flesh, my own desires, and my own understanding, which the Lord has forced me, and I, I mean intentionally forced me to repent of. Why in the world would God choose Jacob? This guy's he's a low-character dude. Esau seems like a man's man, doesn't he? Esau's the, he's the guy. He's just going along. He's hunting. He's doing his thing. And he gets taken advantage of by his slimy little brother. But God had a plan for these two, as he does for each of us, before they were ever born. Before they had ever chosen right or wrong, God had already chosen them and given them a purpose and a role. Continuing, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 31, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. Okay, maybe he's a little dramatic, a little overreacting. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And notice this important part. So Esau despised his birthright. You may remember that that term from our journey in the wilderness through the book of Numbers. Each time the people would grumble, they 
They weren't consciously thinking about despising God, but the Lord described it as despising him, showing him contempt. When they did not value what was most valuable, the Lord called that despising. Esau was more concerned about a bowl of soup than he was about the birthright, the legacy, this lasting inheritance that mattered. But it didn't matter to him. It wasn't that he was generous. It wasn't that he was, you know, you know oh, I'm not really affected by money and wealth. In fact, we'll see that later on when he doesn't get what he wants. He was thoughtless. He lived in the moment. Isn't that what we're told to do all the time? Live in the moment, right? Seize the day. Okay. But don't sell your birthright for stew. Be present in the moment. But understand that our days are numbered. Later on in Psalm 90, Moses will pray the same thing. Lord, teach us to number our days. And we might gain a heart of wisdom. We need to recognize that you're God and we're not. We're limited. And there's something greater that we need to have our eyes focused on. Paul will say that in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Esau's mind was on earthly things. And it cost him not only his birthright, but it cost him something much, much greater. See, both Esau and Jacob were children of Isaac, the child of the promise, who was the child of Abraham, the one with whom God made the covenant. So, ostensibly, if Esau had followed God rightly, now this is speculation, it's always dangerous to get into the what-ifs and so on, if Esau had followed God rightly, could he not have been part of this great blessing of being God's people? Could they not have been two great nations working together to glorify God and being blessed by Him? Differently? Sure. But still under God's blessing. Instead, we see throughout the ages that Edom will be under a curse. Esau's heart is hard against God. He's despising here his birthright. We're going to turn a few chapters here and see Esau take the high road, apparently, and his brother seeming to take the low road. Go to uh, chapter 32. This is a longer passage, but indulge me because I'm going to read it anyway, so you might as well. Starting with verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Incidentally, Seir is, where, uh, is near Kadesh. This is where uh, the children of Israel are, have arrived in Numbers 20. Just to kind of set the stage, I should have done this before. Uh, this happens after Jacob has gone to find a wife. He falls in love uh, with, uh, with Rachel and works for seven years for his uncle Laban, who seems to have the same character as Jacob. And he tricks him and he... Long story short, gets him to marry Leah without recognizing who it is that he's marrying. So then he works another seven years to get Rachel. So we got all kinds of mess here. When we do things that are not God's plan, it's not going to go well. Just in case you're not sure, uh, you know, on the math of it, two wives is one too many, right? So he's left Laban and he's taken uh, the wives and the, his belongings and he's grown wealthy in this time. All right, so here we go. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. 
he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. A little, little shift in tone here, right? Before he was usurping his brother. He was stealing his birthright. You know the story of him dressing up, pretending to be Esau to steal his father's blessing. Well, you might imagine, having stolen the birthright and the blessing, and skipped town as quickly as possible, Esau and Jacob, not really on good terms. So now you're going to fast forward like 20 years later. They haven't seen each other, and now Jacob prepares to meet him. And now he calls him my master. This is what you're to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, <clears throat> excuse me, and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, manservants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I, might, that I may find favor in his eyes, in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Chia. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. But now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So we're seeing, it, again, a change in tone. Having grasped for what did not belong to him before, he is now at least for the moment, recognizing that everything that he has came from God. He didn't earn it. He was given by God. He might have thought he earned it, just like we think we've earned things in this life. But everything we have, including our ability to earn, comes from God. We need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that. Verse 13, he spent the night there. From what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 male... 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. It's a pretty big gift. It's not like, you know, a Speedway gift card. <laughs> Happy birthday. Sorry. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me. And keep some space between the herds. I am so tempted to go into developing this right now. I'll, I'll let you do that on your own. You're sensible people. You can read it for yourself. Just let your mind take in what's going on here. Verse 17. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you were to say, They, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You were to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. In other words, you know, sell me, right? You, you, you need to talk me up as you go here. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me and, you know, not kill me with his 400 men that are here. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, <coughs> excuse me, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of, jo of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You might notice there's still a theme here, right? He's still trying to get a blessing. 
and he's pretty good at grappling since he was grasping the heel coming out of the, of the womb. He's a good wrestler, Jacob is. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. The name Israel means struggled with God or wrestled with God. I wanted to just insert here just for a moment because I always had a hard time with, with Jacob and Israel and this whole thing. It just seemed messed up to me. God wants us to wrestle with him. He wants us to grapple with him. He's not calling us to a blind faith, to an easy believism, but he wants us to wade into the reality of who he is and wrestle with him. Not in arrogance, not in resisting him, but to know him. Jacob has struggled, he has wrestled against God and man. And it isn't until now that he actually is receiving this blessing and this name change. God wants you to have an authentic, genuine faith because you've worked it through, you've wrestled with it. Tell me your name. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? That's it. God just gives him a question here, right? So this, presumably an angel, some, uh, some have uh, speculated that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a Christophany, if you will. Uh, I don't know if I want to go that far. Uh, all I know is what the text says. It's someone representing God, coming from God, presumably an angel taking on human form. We see that elsewhere in Genesis, so that wouldn't be surprising. But he's, he asks the question he already knows. What's your name? Jacob. Not anymore. It's Israel. Who gets to change our name and identity? Somebody tell me. God does. So God says, you're now Israel. I'm changing your identity. And he says, tell me your name. And the angel says, why are you asking me? You already know. You wrestled with God. The angel, whoever it, this might be, is not giving his name because it isn't about the messenger, it's about the one he represents. What a lesson for our lives. The glory isn't for us. It's for the one who sent us. Jesus makes that clear in the book of John. We've been going through John 7 recently and, and we're, we're kind of digging in a little deep on that. And Jesus said, I came to do the will of the one who sent me. He makes it very clear that the focus is not him, but the father who sent him. Here in the same way, the angel says, Boy, you know me. Verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Wrestling with God can leave us with a limp. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor, favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. 
Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, well, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. What a, what a touching story this is. The, after 20 years of, of estrangement and separation, they get together. Jacob is absolutely terrified. Not surprising. You know, you, you leave him on bad terms. You know you did wrong, right? You cheated him. You know you cheated him. Everybody knows you cheated him because God wrote it down for us all to know it. There's, there's no hiding from this. And then you get word that he's coming to meet you with 400 men. But when he gets there, after all of his, his scheming to try to get the gifts in place, not gifts from a generous heart, gifts trying to buy favor, a bribe, if you will, he gets there. And Esau responds, now this is Esau, outside the covenant, outside the promise, he's, he's a man who has not been after God's own heart, but in this instance, in this case, he responds the way a loving brother should. He responds the way the father in Luke 15 does when the prodigal son starts to return and doesn't even get a chance to explain the father and runs and embraces him and kisses him. Here Esau does the same thing to his lying, cheating, scheming, sniveling, groveling Jacob. Hmm. That, that's a Hallmark movie. It's, it, you know, 16. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth. Wait, what? Jacob, however, went to Succoth where... He built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That's why they call the place Shukoth, Shukoth, which means shelter. Hmm. So you said, go back, I'll catch up, and you went the other direction? How do you think Esau might have felt, month goes by, no Jacob. Another month goes by. Six months goes by. This guy. Now, I'm speculating because we're not told how Esau kind of fades from the scene here. We don't, we don't see his response. But can you imagine? You forgave him. You made it right. You, you didn't want to accept his gifts. And then... He does the same dadgum thing again. He skips out. He's still living in fear. He's still living in mistrust because of his own deceiving heart. Now we get to Numbers 20. Generation, centuries later. right? This happens in Genesis before they ever go to Egypt. They're in Egypt for over 400 years. They've been wandering in the desert now for 40 years and... Here we're coming up on the descendants of Esau, Edom, and there's a bitterness. All right. Now, with all that in mind, we can press forward into trying to understand this a little bit. Again, our core reality. In the difficulty of sin's lasting damage, God remains in control. Note this. Sometimes we can't undo the destruction caused by sinful choices. Sometimes we can't undo the destruction caused by sinful choices. Jacob was a schemer. He did bad things. I was going to say to good people, but Esau wasn't that good either. But he did bad things to people. And now Moses is coming, all this time later, and the damage to the relationship between 
the people of Israel and the people of Edom reflects the damage to the relationship between the two brothers that started these nations. Passed down for generations. This makes the Hatfields and the McCoys look like, like you know, a family squabble. This is the ultimate kind of feud. In fact, when we see the, the uh, uh, nations in the land of Canaan that are going to be driven out, all of them have roots in the Genesis story. And as we look through those genealogies, you'll see the sons born to the children following Noah that branch out and become these nations and turn against God. But this bitterness between them, specifically Edom, the brother, the close brother of Israel, and Israel itself, is lasting. That damage can't be undone. Even in the prophets later on, after the exile of Judah into Babylon, Edom is still an enemy of his brother Israel. And Edom will pay for his rebellion and, and his thumbing his nose at God and resenting God's sovereignty. The nation will pay, but here we see that sometimes we can't undo the destruction caused by sinful choices. Grace is not a time machine. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. We can't go back and, and use our magic grace eraser and pretend that things didn't happen. All choices have consequences. And my choices determine my destiny. Sometimes we can make amends or repair the damage our choices and failures cause, but many times we can't. A drunk driver may be able to repent and change his ways. That's good. That's what you want. And he may, he may do that. He may repent and change his ways. He may even be able to repair or pay for the damage done to someone's property by his transgression. You know what he can't do? He can't give grieving parents back their child whose life was taken by his actions. No amount of grace brings that child back. No amount of sorry fixes that past. When giving in to my human desires takes away the purity of another person, I can't restore their innocence or my own for that matter. No, sometimes we can't undo the destruction caused by sinful choices Notice also, sin has victims long after the moment is past. Sin has victims long after the moment is past. Jacob's unfaithful, deceptive behavior toward his brother generations, centuries earlier, caused problems for Moses and the descendants of Jacob with Esau's descendants. Even today, there's constant strife and animosity in the Middle East. We all know this. When it comes to my own sin, I may have repented. I, I may have already received God's forgiveness by His grace. And I may have been able to move on past the past that brought me shame. That doesn't mean that those who were affected have. It may be those I've hurt. It may be those who learn sinful ways from me by my example. It may be those who never knew me, but the ripple effect impacted them. Jacob's sins carried on through generations. And the effect of that, the victims of that, included even these here in the wilderness who never knew those men. We can tend to expect others to forgive us and let us move on, but that simply isn't how it works. As those who belong to the Lord, we reflect the reality of Christ with humility, and humility demands that we make no demands. So we can lose that attitude of indignance about that person who refuses to forgive. I can't tell you the number of times in the past 20 years 
The people have come to me and said, can you talk to this person and make them forgive me? No. No, I cannot. I don't have a magic pill for that. You can't make people do anything. We need to recognize sometimes the damage can't be undone. And even when it can, victims are carrying the weight of sin from others long past that moment. Long after you've stopped thinking about it and dealing with it, others still do. We see many verses in in the Scripture. I'll just point out Exodus 20, uh, verses 5 and 6. I don't think these are in your program for you, so you might jot them down. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. Again in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Leviticus 26, 39. These all have the, the idea behind them that sins are visited on the children for multiple generations. Here's from Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In Exodus 34, he points out his gracious and merciful nature, and yet still, even as he forgives iniquity, he will by no means clear the guilty. And the iniquity of the fathers is passed on to the children and the children's children. Understand that the lasting impact of sin affects others way past that moment that you're in. However, don't be confused. A lot of people will look at this and talk about generational curses and so on and so forth, and God is going to punish me because my father did that. That's, that's not God. Notice these other passages, and I'll let you look them up for, the, for yourself. I'll give them to you so you can jot them down, and then I'll just give you a sampling. Deuteronomy 24, 16. 2 Kings 14, 6. Ezekiel 18.20. And all of these are pointing out that the children are not punished for the sins of their parents. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Those other passages say very similar things. The law of Moses says that fathers shall not be put to, put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall die for his own sin. So we're not talking about the punishment. What we're talking about that passes on from generation to generation, there is a chain, is the effect of that sin. My sin gets passed on to my children because they're victims of it, because they learn to do it from me. They pick up my attitude. So those strongholds that the devil gets in my life that I don't deal with, you can understand I'm passing those on to my children. My children have anger issues? Where do you think they got that? My children have lust issues? Where do you think they got that? Laziness? Dishonesty? Whatever it is, not new now they they suffer for their own sins i suffer for my own sins but there is a chain there is a legacy we need to be aware of that they're not punished for the sins of their parents but they are affected by them notice also the past may impede our journey but the lord determines our destiny the past may impede our journey, but the Lord determines our destiny. Notice in verse 21, after Edom said, nope, we're not, not letting you in. You shall not pass. We're going to bring out an army to make sure y'all don't pass. Israel turned away from them. Now they could have fought them. God had already said, I'm not giving you, and he'll say it again in Deuteronomy, I'm not giving you their land. That's theirs. I have a, an inheritance for you. Don't go to war with Edom. Don't 
set foot, don't, don't even try to take a, 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 a backyard out of there. It's not for you. They turn away. The lasting impact of sin cannot thwart God's promises. But its repercussions increase life's difficulty. God was still going to bring them into the promised land. That didn't change. When they rejected him back in in, uh, chapter 14, it didn't change. God had him wander in the wilderness. That generation passed. But he was still doing what he had promised in his covenant to do. He was going to deliver them into their inheritance, into the promised land. And he's going to now. But the lasting impact of someone else's sin, Jacob and Esau, all those years ago, the lasting impact of that means that we've got to walk around. We don't get the straight path. I have to take a circuitous route. God was still bringing them into the promised land, but the rift with Edom would take them on a different and more difficult route to get there. We have to, we must adapt and adjust as needed to address the things that I no longer control, knowing that God remains sovereign over us and he remains faithful to his promises. In his sovereignty, he works all things together for good. We know this from Romans 8.28 and so many other related passages. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean it's going to feel good. It doesn't mean it's going to seem good. It doesn't mean that it's going to be what we want or what we dialed up when we tried to order it. We might pray in one direction and God delivers in another direction because he knows what he's doing. And all of it is working together in his sovereign plan for our ultimate good. Notice our ultimate good. The good in the end, not the good today. And his ultimate glory. Even as we saw last time, when Moses failed to show God as holy before the people, God showed himself holy in his judgment of Moses. God will be glorified, and he will work all things together for good. Whatever difficulty comes our way, even when it's caused by our own sins, our Heavenly Father is using it to shape us, to make us more like Jesus. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit to ensure this. I'm going to invite you, I was going to read it with you. For the sake of time, I won't. I'm going to invite you to read Ephesians 1 on your own time. You can mark down Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be God. Praise be to God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. These, these blessings are waiting for us in heaven. And he goes on later on in, in 13 and 14 to say that he's sealed us, he's marked us with his Holy Spirit. He's a guarantee, a deposit, an earnest payment, if you will, that God's going to finish what he started. Philippians 1.6 reminds us of that. Paul says that he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, even if it takes until Christ returns for us to recognize it. So now what? What do we do when we're facing the reality of sin's lasting damage. Where do we go from here? Well, two different categories here. What do I do if it's from my sin? I'm facing the the lasting effects, the lasting damage from my own sin. Or what if I'm I'm the victim of somebody else's sin? First, let's start with ourselves. If it's from my sin, first thing I have to do is humble myself and repent. Repent. I don't have blanks for these, but I would encourage you to jot these things down as they, as they fit your application. I need to humble myself and repent. As a rule, I need to have in my mind that I need to take care of business with God and myself before dealing with anybody else. I may have to go and deal with other people. I may have to, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation, but the first thing I've got to do is I've got to get stuff squared away between me and God i got to check my own heart. 
I need to humble myself and repent. In a sense, everything else I'm going to say is an extension of that. It flows from that. If I don't start with humility and repentance, the rest of it isn't going to matter. Secondly, after that, again, as part and parcel of it, I have to take ownership of the damage that I caused. Not simply the fact that I did something wrong. I have to take ownership, not just of repenting of that sin, I have to recognize the damage that I caused and own that. I hurt you. I betrayed you. I took something from you that you can't get back. That's my fault. And I want to repair it, but I can't. I have to take ownership. Next, I have to recognize that my choices may have set things in motion over which I no longer have control. I have to recognize that my choices may have set things in motion over which I no longer have control. Just to make it short and help, hopefully help you understand. Once I throw the rock at the window... When it leaves my hand, it's out of my control. I made the choice to make the throw, but once I make that throw, that rock is in the air and there's nothing I can do about it. I, I can regret it, I can lament it, I can turn from it, I can repent the moment it leaves my hand, but I can't control what happens next because I set it in motion. I have to recognize that I may have set things in motion with my sinful choices over which I no longer have control. Fourth, when I'm dealing with the lasting damage from my sin, I need to seek to make amends, to set it right, to try to make right what I made wrong, understanding that sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes I can't make amends. Sometimes I can't get it right. I don't always have the power to restore what my sin has destroyed. If I, you know, break a lamp, I can replace the lamp, but I can't. If it's a family heirloom, a one-of-a-kind thing, I can't get that back. I can't give someone back their purity. Seek to make amends, understanding that sometimes it's not possible. Fifth, whenever possible, I need to seek reconciliation. I'm going to try and make right what I can make right, knowing that I can't always make it right. But whenever possible, I need to seek reconciliation and, and restored relationship, knowing that it may not be available to me. I may not be able to reconcile. Forgiveness has to do with my choice. Repentance has to do with my choice. Reconciliation involves somebody else. That's someone else's choice. And I may have burned that bridge and it's not up to me whether it gets repaired or not. Whenever possible, seek reconciliation and restoration knowing that it might not be available. I can't make choices for other people. Reconciliation depends on the other party. So however that plays out, sixthly, I need to actively remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. Even as we see in the story, God is taking them somewhere. God was doing what he promised, his choice, the destiny that he had given to Jacob's people, to Israel, despite Jacob's character, despite their own character, he showed them grace and he would continue. God demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus to die for sinners in the midst of our sinfulness. Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that God's covenant is His promise. You didn't earn it. You didn't work it up. God chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. He chose you. If you have turned to Christ, it's because He chose you. He awakened in you what sin always held dominion over. That thing we call free will is so bent towards sin. Every time we do our own thing, every time we make a choice, we're choosing away from God. 
God's covenant is his promise. And he remains faithful to his promises. His love never fails. God's faithfulness remains even when we can't undo the lasting damage of sinful choices. Now the devil is going to attack my mind. He's going to remind me of my past sins. Listen now. Hear this well. Because it's not a maybe. He will do it. And you know, if you're paying attention and you are in Christ, then you already know he's going to do this. He's going to work hard to lay the guilt on you about your past. But you can't change your past. What's more, you've already been forgiven for your past if you are in Christ because he paid the penalty for it. The devil will still keep bringing it up. But understand, my job now, once I've received Christ, I have to still take ownership for the consequences, but I have to reject the devil's lies and affirm the truth of God's word. No matter what the devil tries to bring as accusation, I need to rest in the covenant promises of God. Everything that we see in the book of Numbers has to do with God's covenant with his people. And everything we understand in the New Testament about the gospel has to do with God's covenant through Christ with his new people, those who are in this new covenant through Christ's blood. Martin Luther famously said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Amen. Actively remember God's grace. Lastly, live as a recipient of that grace. Live as a recipient of grace. I have to reflect the reality of Christ through my relationships and work to, the, to end the cycle of descent. We see this descent in Israel that we'll see throughout their history, but this, this thing that gets passed on from Jacob and Esau through the generations, that only gets broken with active effort to retrain, to forgive to seek reconciliation and to teach that to those who come after it. I have to model it. I have to live it. I have to humble myself and live in daily repentance and pass that on to my children and those within my circle of influence. I have to live as a recipient of grace. Remember your roots. Remember your chains. And remember that God will use all of it to shape and prepare his child for the glorious future to which he's bringing us. Okay, so that's all well and good in dealing with our sin. And, and I don't mean to make that sound trite or easy because if you're dealing with the lasting damage caused by your sin, you know it's anything but easy. In fact, in some ways, it's even harder than being the victim of somebody else's sin because you're the victim of what you have perpetrated yourself. But what if I'm dealing with the lasting damage from somebody else's sin? I'm a victim of another's sinful choices. Three steps I want you to see here. First, forgive. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven me. That's, that's what I got to do. It's what Jesus said at the end of, of the Lord's Prayer. I have to forgive, and if I don't forgive, I cannot expect that I'm going to be forgiven by God. If I don't demonstrate that mercy and grace to others, then I show that I know nothing of God's grace. Three parts I have to know if I'm going to forgive as, as God in Christ has forgiven me. First, I need to release resentment. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. I'll repay. I have to release resentment and renounce revenge renounce revenge let god handle it and i have to i have to relinquish recompense 
I have to relinquish recompense. I have to let go of thinking somebody owes me something. I can't forgive unless I let you off my hook. But I'm putting you on God's hook. He's going to handle the justice aspect of it. He will give what is deserved. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. His justice is perfect. But if I'm going to be a recipient of God's grace, I need to stop thinking that the person who did me wrong owes me something. That's not relevant to life at all. Because my sins are against God. Somebody who's done me wrong is a sinner sinning against another sinner. Release resentment, renounce revenge, relinquish recompense. I have to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven me. Secondly, I have to trust God. Forgive, then trust God to work it all out for His ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Trust God to deliver you and to deal with them. Israel had to turn away. Let God deal with Edom. And God does judge Edom. He'll deal with that. That's not my business. My business is i got to get back on the path, follow the cloud, get to the promised land. That's the job. Trust God to work it all out for His ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Even if there's no clear resolution in this life. I have to trust God even when I can't see how He can possibly make this horrible thing good. How can He take this egregious sin against me And make some kind of good out of it. Don't misunderstand. Bad things aren't good because God is using them for good. Right? Evil is evil. Sins against God, God still uses to accomplish His purpose. Ultimately, for our good. And ultimately, for His glory. I have to trust Him to work it out. Forgive, trust God. Thirdly, Press on. Press on in faith. Do whatever must be done. Make whatever adjustments are necessary to adapt and overcome. To live in light of who I truly am in Christ. Press on in faith. I must not allow myself to see myself or identify as a victim. Even when I have been a victim when sin has been perpetrated against me, when something has been stolen from me that can never be returned or restored, even then, I must not allow myself to see myself as a victim, but as a dearly loved, wholly accepted child of God by His grace, In Christ, by God's grace, I am not damaged goods. I've been adopted by Christ. God has given me the full standing of His only begotten Son through faith in Him. Whoever receives Him, He gives the right to become children of God. And in Christ, I am God's own precious child given the full standing of Jesus himself by grace. Forgive, trust God, press on. Just because these steps are short and to the point does not mean that we should take this lightly, that this is a glib or a trite thing. Your pain is real and profound and the lasting scars that you've had to deal with, they don't go away because we choose to forgive. But God will, in His time, by His design, restore the years the locusts have eaten. He is the God who redeems and restores. And in the end, He will set all things right. Forgive, trust God, press on. 
The steadfast love of God does not negate the reality of sin's lasting irrevocable damage, but sin's damage does not negate the reality of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. In the difficulty of sin's lasting damage, God remains in control. He is sovereign over us, and His covenant promises never fail. Whatever we deal with in this life, even troubles of our own making, cannot thwart God's glorious plans for His people. For our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's pray together. Father God, as we, uh, as we close out our time together this morning with song, remind our hearts that in the valley, in the darkness, in the wilderness, when we face the difficulty of life's lasting damage, you remain sovereign over us. Your love for us is so deep and so profound that you gave your only son to make a wretch your treasure. This is an unfathomable, unthinkable love, a grace so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my life, my all. Speak to us in this moment, Lord, that we might remember that we belong to you and that you've stamped your name on us. And that you are working all things for our ultimate good, your ultimate glory, because you are sovereign. We pray this in the name of the one who gave himself for us. Amen.